Well, we, uh, we've all been through a year uh, over the last year or so. The, la- the last year has just been, um, well, there's lots of words you could use for it. Uh, one word that I've started using is brutal. The last year has just been brutal on us in so many different ways. Um, it's, it's probably been brutal for you and things in your home life, in your business life, in your family. Uh, but it's also been brutal on our experience as church. Late last year, I heard a stat that said that one in five people, that's 20% for those of you who aren't fans of math, one in five people in 2020 who were regular churchgoers just stopped attending, stopped watching, just entirely got disconnected for, for a variety of reasons. I've seen some nodding of heads. Maybe that was you. And so our experience of church just radically changed. But, but it didn't just impact our experience of church. There's been a massive impact on people in, in my role of responsibility of leadership. Early this year, I was listening to a podcast, and I heard a, a stat that 29% of pastors had given serious thought to quitting full-time ministry in the last year. And, uh, and I think that number is actually a little bit low. Uh, I think that number is probably a lot higher. I think that because of the conversations I've had and because of the experiences I had. I'll be honest, there, there were multiple times in the last 14 months uh, where I was in that group. Not thinking about quitting ministry entirely, but asking myself, man, this is really hard. And, and on those days when things are hard, thoughts cross through your mind. And they cross through your mind because you're tired. All of us, when we're fatigued, we consider things. And think about things that we don't think about at all when we're charged up, full of energy. Uh, when we're facing difficulty. Uh, I know that there were some people who said, man, Scott, your job is so easy. All you got to do is stand in front of a camera for an hour a week now, man. What, what else do you spend your time doing? And I just wanted to, you know, <laughs> strangle them maybe. Um, but there was incredible difficulty in, in leading and navigating through all of this. And as you might not be surprised by there was just a little bit of conflict. Conflict is hard to go through when you're at your best place. Conflict is really hard to go through when you're at your worst place. And so no matter what your job is, I think all of us on some level faced fatigue and difficulty and conflict. Now, I, I will tell you that, that I felt those things, and I'm using the past tense there. I don't feel those things today. I'm grateful to God for it. And I'm grateful for people who came alongside of me, my, my wife and our board and our staff and, and my counselor and friends to walk with me through that. But, but I, I couldn't stand up here today and talk about what we're going to talk about today. And I'll be honest about the fact that there has been points where that thought has crossed my mind. And the reason I share that is because I don't think that I'm alone. And maybe you thought at some point in the last year that you were alone. Man, I'm the only person who's struggling this much. I'm the only person who's thinking about quitting. I'm the only person who's thinking about throwing in the towel. And I just want you to know, you're not. You're not alone. Other people have had those same thoughts go through their mind too. And I know that I'm the one up here with the Bible and the notes and the slides, but, but I'm, I'm human, just like you. The other reason I, I, I tell you that to begin today is that as we dig into this particular message in our series on rebuilding, we're going to talk about those moments 
when the obstacles and the resistance and the opposition and the difficulty get so overwhelming that you begin to think about things and consider things that at one point seemed inconceivable to you. We're going to talk about what happens in the middle of the rebuilding where what you thought it was going to be runs headlong into what it really is. And I think that this may be the most important message in this series because I think it's where we all end up eventually and we don't talk about enough. So if you have a copy of the handout and you're taking notes, whether you're at home or you're here, here's the big idea. When we follow God's calling, we encounter opposition. When you follow God's will for your life, when you follow his calling and you go where he leads you, what you are going to encounter is opposition, resistance, pushback, difficulty. And we're going to see that in the story of Nehemiah today. And I believe many of us have lived through that in the last 14 months. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on and head to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to actually be in Nehemiah 4 a little bit in Nehemiah 5. We'll be there more next week. And then in Nehemiah 6. If you're new to the Bible, Nehemiah is about, I don't know, maybe uh, 35% of the way through the Bible. It's bookended by Ezra and Esther. We've been making our home in Nehemiah for the past month. We're going to wrap up this series next week. I also want to let you know, we mentioned that we're going to a new schedule next Sunday. If you have kids, you're going to want to attend the 9 o'clock service because that's when we're going to have our nursery and children's programming out. We will not have it at the 1030 service. We hope to have that later, but we're still rebuilding that team as well that serves in that area. So 9 o'clock is that time if you want to take advantage of our kids' programming. So if you're in Nehemiah 4, I want to share with you today, we're going to look at four principles for rebuilders about opposition, because I want you to know what to expect since you're going to encounter this. And here's the first thing that you need to know, the first principle. We have an enemy who opposes the work of God. We have an enemy who opposes the work of God. Now, before we go into Nehemiah and see particularly how this works out for him, I want you to know who is this enemy that's going to oppose and resist you following God's calling for your life. And in Ephesians 6, we learn about this enemy. Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's our enemy. And so when we follow God and we go where he wants us to go, our enemy attacks and resists that. And so we have an enemy as followers of Jesus, but our enemy is not people. Our enemy is Satan. Now, Satan may co-opt people. He may use people. But as followers of Jesus, people are never our enemy. Satan is our enemy. There's a great line in that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, by the reformer Martin Luther, who said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. There is no one who has the power on earth like 
Satan does to resist and oppose the work of God in us. And this is not some mild power. In 1 Peter 5, the disciple of Jesus says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. So this isn't just like a a kind of mild enemy. No, Satan is looking to take us out and sideline us so that God cannot accomplish his purposes through us. This is why it's so unfortunate that so often when we're discerning God's will and God's calling for our life, we begin to think that something is God's will because it's easy. We go, man, all the doors are opening and everything seems to be just lining up. Well, that may seem like to you that God is in it, but it seems like to me, according to the definition of Scripture, that when all hell breaks loose and starts coming towards you, that may also be a sign that God's leading you. Because Satan doesn't resist us when we're not actually going the direction that God wants. We're not a threat. But the lion comes out when we're going down the path of God's calling. In the book of 2 Corinthians, we learn how Satan actually makes his most successful advances against us. It says, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. So if you knew that you had an enemy and you knew that he was coming after you and you knew that he opposed what God wanted to do in your life, then why would you ever be tricked by him? Because he disguises himself. Because he paints what he's doing in a different light. Because he's got a lot more practice at this than you do life. He's been doing this for 2,000 plus years with followers of Jesus and none of us, no matter how old you feel today, have been at life that long. He's got way more experience than you. And I share all of this so that you are not naive. I think sometimes as, as followers of Jesus, we, we like to kind of uh, stick our fingers in our ears and close our eyes and pretend things aren't happening. But if you go and read Galatians 5, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What did you not find in that list? Naivete. Being naive is not a fruit of the Spirit. So you need to be aware as you are following God's calling on your life, and especially if you are rebuilding something that got torn down over the last 14 years in your work, in your family, in your relationships. The work that God is going to do in and through you to rebuild what was broken, that work is going to be opposed by an enemy. So this is what you are to expect. That's the first principle. The second principle is that our enemy's tactics are shrewd and dangerous, but they are not new. Our enemy, yeah, he's shrewd. He's a shrewd dude. He's a dangerous dude. But the toolbox that he pulls from has old, rusty tools that are not new. 
Now today I can't read every passage I'm going to talk about in its entirety. And so in the same way that I told you last week to go home and read Nehemiah 3 when the service is over, I'm going to encourage you to read Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6. Because in Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6, we're going to see nine different tactics that our enemy uses. And let me show you the list right here. These are the tactics that our enemy uses. He uses things like ridicule, violence, discouragement, fear, selfish agendas, distractions, slander, threats, and intimidation. And today, when you leave, I've I've got a little card for you, if you're here in the room, that they'll hand you when you drop off your uh, dirty communion cup. And you can take one of these home as a reminder. If you're watching online on our worship resources page, there's a little section there that says uh, sermon extras. Click on that button and you'll see that card. You can download it. But these nine tactics are the things that, that our enemy uses to try to defeat Nehemiah and the people. And, and I think as, as we get into these and as you go home and read about them, I think you're going to find these same things are in play in your life. Satan's tactics that he uses against the people here are the same things that he uses against us. Now, I I can't talk about all nine of them today, but I'm going to pick on three. And the first one is ridicule. Satan uses ridicule to try to defeat us. And we see this in Nehemiah 4. If you have your Bible open, you can follow along. Nehemiah 4.1 says, when Sanballat heard, and we heard about him a couple weeks ago, Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish the wall? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they're building he would break down their stone wall. He's mocking that this wall is not even strong enough to hold a very small animal. And they're using these words, Sanballat and Tobiah, to ridicule the people and say, you're literally pushing yourself to your physical exertions ends and what you're building is not strong. You're not going to do this. You can't pull this off. You're kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourselves. You guys should just give Friends, we see in this passage that words are powerful. If you're watching online and you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you just type the words, words are powerful in the chat. Because all of us have experienced the powerful words of somebody else. Some of you, even though you have kids of your own, you still remember words that your parents spoke about you. Positive and negative. Maybe a friend, maybe a teacher, maybe a supervisor. See, what what we see at the beginning of the Bible is God creates the world not with hands, but with words. Everything that you experienced yesterday, if you got out and enjoyed the beautiful weather this weekend, everything you experienced was spoken into existence by God. And 
And words not only make worlds, but words destroy worlds. I know we all heard that rhyme about sticks and stones, but just because something was taught to you doesn't mean it's true. Because we've all experienced words that came in and just took a wrecking ball to our heart and our soul. And this is what our enemy Satan does. In Revelation 12, the Apostle John describes him as an accuser. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. There's going to be a day. When our accuser, our enemy Satan, is permanently defeated, but until then, he's going to do all he can to ridicule us and accuse us and use words to try and defeat us. The same way that happens with Sanballat and Tobiah and the people. And, and one thing that you can know about ridicule is that ridicule will come in your life in the place where you feel weak. The people... We're struggling to rebuild a wall that hadn't been rebuilt in 150 years. They, none of them, very few of them, were construction-minded. None of them had degrees in wall rebuilding. And yet they're rebuilding this wall, and the ridicule of Sanballat and Tobiah, it attacks and seizes upon their vulnerabilities. Now, you and I, we, we know our vulnerabilities. We know those places in our heart and our soul where we feel weak. We feel unconfident. We feel insecure. And ridicule will come from our enemy into that place and try to use our vulnerabilities to sideline us. I texted a friend this week and I said, hey, I'm preaching this message about opposition. And this was Tuesday. I can tell you what's going to happen this week. I'm going to experience opposition. Why? So that I don't get up here and talk about this because I am defeated by it myself. So what happened on Wednesday? Ridicule shows up in my life. I haven't led perfectly in the last year. Next time there's a pandemic, I'm going to do some things differently. And yet for me, one of my vulnerabilities is I can stew on and get focused and fixated on what I didn't do as well as I wanted it to do. And into that attack comes. And our enemy begins to take the things that are real, genuine learning experiences for me and go, you know what? That isn't a learning experience, Scott. Who are you kidding? You suck at this. You're the reason why things are the way you are. Your bad leadership, your bad decisions, things you didn't know, things you didn't do, things you should have done differently, things you should have controlled. You know what, Scott? You should just give up. That's the voice of ridicule. And I didn't give up. And neither did the people. And in a second, we're going to talk about how, but that's one of the things. The, the next thing the enemy uses is discouragement. Discouragement. In Nehemiah 4.10, if you have your Bible still open, it says, In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails. Since there is so much rubble, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. The people got discouraged because they were overwhelmed at all the work. It's kind of like when you have the idea that you're going to clean out your garage. 
And then everything that's in the garage ends up in the driveway. And you're like, what was I thinking? There is so much stuff here. And they get discouraged in the middle. Friends, every project has a messy middle. You thought you knew how hard it was going to be until you're in the middle. You thought you knew how much work it was going to be until you're in the middle. You thought you had an idea of how much time it would take until you're in the middle. And it's in the messy middle that discouragement shows up. Now, as Zig Ziglar famously said, discouragement is a temporary situation, not our future destination. It is where we are today. And so often what we do is we make permanent decisions based upon temporary feelings. And I just want to encourage you that as you are rebuilding and following God's calling in your life, discouragement is inevitable, but quitting isn't. You will feel discouraged. I promise you. If you're doing something that's worthy of your life and and God's calling on you. But you don't have to quit. And I love the fact that that the scriptures are honest with us about the discouragement that the people face. The third one of these I want to highlight is distraction. Distraction. It's number six on the list here. Distraction. Here's what happens to Nehemiah in Nehemiah 6. So we're here about these guys again. Sanballat and Tobiah. They have a friend named Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies, when they heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there was no gap in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So Nehemiah says, I sent messengers to them saying... I am doing important work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. See, these guys have tried a straightforward attack. They've tried to ridicule Nehemiah. They've plotted violently against him. They've tried to use discouragement and fear. And all of those direct attacks aren't working. So what do they do? They try to come out a side door and they go, hey, we're not enemies, we're pals. Come on, let's have a little peace summit. Only problem is, is that the Ono Valley is 27 miles from Jerusalem. Even walking at three miles an hour, that's a full day's walk. That Nehemiah is going to be away. And while he's gone, they can come in and they can attack. And so what does Nehemiah say? He says, no, I can't go. Why should I stop this important work? See, what we see here is that Nehemiah had already said yes to the calling of God. Therefore, for him, it's a no to everything else. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm somebody who struggles with the no button. I tend to just say yes and say yes and say yes and say yes. But what has helped me to grow in using the no button is realizing that what I say yes to basically makes the decisions for what I say no to. With every yes you say, you're leaving less and less room in your life. 
And when you've already given your yes to God for something that is all-consuming, anything else, no matter how good, is a no. Because you've already said yes. And that's why sometimes we can get distracted by good opportunities that take us away from what God has already called us to. It isn't always just bad things that are distractions. Sometimes it's good things. But by saying yes to that new opportunity, what we will do is we won't be able to do the thing that God's already called us to do. But if you're a parent in this room especially, I just want to make a little caveat for you. Not every interruption is a distraction. Sometimes the interruptions are the work. As a parent, for me, I have to remind myself that when my kids come in and I've got a plan, they are not an interruption. They are part of my calling. And if you're somebody who's task-driven, I just want to remind you that people... (laughs) are not more important than your to-do list. Because at the end of the day, if you get done all the things on the to-do list and everybody in your life felt less important than the thing you needed to check off, you've missed the point. Sometimes the interruptions, they are the work. Okay, third principle. When we're facing opposition, our first response to opposition is prayer, and our next step is action. So when we start experiencing opposition, our first response is to stop and pray, but we don't stop there. Our next step is action, and we see this with Nehemiah. So what does he do with these opposition things that come his way, with ridicule, with disappointment, with distractions? What do we do with those things? Well, we start with prayer. After the ridicule in Nehemiah 4.4, he says, Listen, our God, for we are despised. He takes the words of ridicule, and instead of internalizing them and believing them, he puts them before God in prayer to say, God, help me interpret these things I'm hearing and I'm feeling. In Nehemiah 6, when the distraction comes and the, the invitation comes, what does he say? God, now strengthen my hand. See, what Nehemiah does that's so different from us is that he responds to opposition. He doesn't react to it. And there's a big difference between responsive action and reactive action. Responsive action is something happens. We we step back. We think about it. We prayerfully reflect on it. And then we respond. Reactive action is something happens and we tweet or post our feelings to social media before we even are thinking about what we're thinking or feeling. And then we're seeing the comments explode and we're like, oh, I don't know what happened. See, when we react, what we're doing is we're entirely skipping over that first step of prayer. And nine times in the 13 chapters of Nehemiah, what Nehemiah does is he pauses and prays before he does anything else. And for some of us, that's the word you need to hear from me again and again in this series. That prayer is our first step. It isn't to quickly take it into your own hands. 
It isn't to try to solve it in your own power and strength. Our first step is to pray. Because a lot of us say that we believe that God is all-powerful and all-sovereign, but when crisis comes, we act as if we are all-powerful and we are sovereign. Because we trust in our power and strength before we ever think about God. And then we turn to prayer and we try everything else. We say that we're a believer and a worshiper of God, but functionally, we're humanists. As if God doesn't exist. So for some of you, you need to heed the example of Nehemiah and make your first response prayer. But others of us, we need to remember that it isn't just prayer, it is then taking action. Nehemiah says, yeah, I'm going to pray, but then what we're going to watch is that he does stuff. And, and it's, it's trite and it's cliche, but almost all of us have heard that famous story about the man stuck on his roof in the flood. And God sends a boat. And God sends a helicopter. And he says, no, God's got me. He's going to come get me. And then finally he dies. And God says, hey, buddy, I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. Like, that was actually my work. I need you to do something. And for those of us who just wait in prayer and never fill out a job application... Those of us who wait in prayer but never have the hard conversation, it's not one or the other, it's both. So see what Nehemiah does here. In Nehemiah 4.13, after these threats come, it says, I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords and their spears and their bows. So Nehemiah has prayed to God, God, hear these these violent words that are coming towards us, he prays and then he says, hey, get in places to defend people. In verse 16, it says, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armors. The officers supported all the people of Judah. So he splits his people in two and half of them are working and half of them are defending. Not passive. No, he's taking action. They're working hard. In Nehemiah 4.23, he says, I and my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when watching. They they were following Jesus, but they smelled pretty ripe. And that's how hard they were willing to work. And that's where I just have to encourage you, that following Jesus will require you to break a sweat. It may push you to a place where you've never worked as hard as you're working before. And that doesn't mean you're not trusting God. It may mean that you're following him and trusting him like you never have before. And then he encourages them. In Nehemiah 4.19, he says, I said to the people, the nobles, the officials, the work is enormous and spread out and we are separated from one another along the wall. So wherever you hear the sound of the ram's horn rally to us there, our God will fight for us. They're all spread out across two miles. So whenever the attack comes, he says, blow the horn and we'll rally to you. They're in this together. Now, I'm not sure any of you, I didn't see anybody coming today carrying a ram's horn with you today. But as you face opposition, you're going to have to ask for help. And when you're feeling that opposition, it's important that you turn to the people around you and say, hey, help. And then when you hear somebody shout that, you rally to them. 
Finally, he says, don't be afraid of the opposition. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He says, put your focus on God and what he's already done and fight for and do this for everybody around you. And guess what? All nine of these tactics, they come to naught. They don't deter the people. That's why I think it's so crazy. If you look at the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the people didn't have to act that way. You know, I I think we read the Bible sometimes and think it's kind of just like a story or a movie that we've seen before and we know how it goes. The story didn't have to go that way. They could have given in to the ridicule. They could have given in to the disappointment. They could have given in to the distraction. The same way you can right now. Your story isn't finished. Your story isn't written. And what you do in the face of that opposition will decide the rest of the story. And the same way that you have a choice today, they had a choice then. But what are you going to do in the face of what you're facing? Number four, celebration lies on the other side of opposition. The people in the end, they celebrate, but it's after having gone through incredible opposition. It says the wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. Friends, in only 52 days, less than two months, you got kids in school, that's basically spring break. Not that long ago. In 52 days, they accomplished what hadn't been done in 150 years. And it's a perfect example of the words of Ecclesiastes 7, which says, Finishing is better than starting. And patience is better than pride. And what happens when they finish this wall, this incredible project? Well, it says that the people who were there, who saw what they had done, they melted in fear and they lost their confidence because of what God had done through them. All these people who'd opposed them, they kind of stepped back and they said, whoa, they actually did it. And all of that confidence in the opposition, it fell. But I love what the Bible does in the end of this section in Nehemiah 6. It tells us the truth about how life really goes. If you have your Bible still open in Nehemiah 6, read the end of that chapter. Nehemiah end of 6 says, During those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, you know, the bad guy, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehonahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. It's a lot of hard names right there. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported back my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Translation, our enemy never quits. This side of Jesus returning and defeating Satan once and for all, our enemy will never quit. This thing you're rebuilding right now, God's going to carry it through. It's going to get finished. But guess what? You're still going to face opposition. 
That, that, that child that you're wrestling with and you're parenting, you're going to get into a different season and guess what? Your enemy's still going to oppose you. A challenge you're having in your marriage right now, God's going to carry you through that and be faithful to you. But guess what? Your enemy is still going to be there. He is always going to resist the work that God does. And as long as there's still breath in your lungs, you're going to experience opposition. And I just want to encourage you that if you're in the middle of your project today, your messy middle may last a lot longer than 52 days. Your rebuilding project may take longer than this series or even this year. And that's why it's so tempting to give up. Because when you've been trusting and trying and persevering and continuing day after day after day, and it still feels like you're further from this shore and further from this shore and your messy middle just keeps lasting and lasting and lasting, you become more and more vulnerable to opposition and it becomes easier and easier to give up. And I want to help you walk through that messy middle today with some next steps. So if you're taking notes on the back of your hand up, here's the first one. Pretty simple, just expect opposition. So much of our frustration in life is we have the wrong expectations. And we tend to think that if God opens the door, it leads to a bright, shiny meadow. Well, sometimes when God opens the door, it leads to the fires of Mordor in Lord of the Rings. And sometimes the closer you get to the end of your rebuilding, it's like Frodo with the ring. You've got orcs and enemies and Sauron and Saruman and all hell's coming your way. And sometimes that's the sign you're in God's will. Sometimes the sign you're in God's will is it's getting harder, not easier. Because the resistance is pushing back more because you're getting where you've never been before. Number two, get familiar with Satan's tactics so you can identify them. Jesus said in the, in, the, in the scriptures, in the gospels, that we're to be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. So we got to know these tactics. So again, as you leave today, I'd encourage you to take one of these cards and put it up somewhere where you can see it and familiarize yourself with the tactics that our enemy uses. If you're watching online, that worship resources page, tap that sermon extras button and download your copy of it so that you can know what's going to come your way. So when you get ridiculed this week in your spirit, you go, oh, I I know where that is. And you begin to fight it differently. Number three, attack the problem, not each other. One of the things our enemy has done this year is instead of having us all united, advancing the kingdom of God, he has us fighting each other over masks and politics. And if we take each other out, we're not a threat to him. So when we resort to gossiping about one another and slandering one another and advancing selfish agendas and friendly fire on one another, he doesn't have to oppose us a whole lot because we're opposing each other. So when you hear something about somebody, go talk to them instead of talking about them. Instead of texting a friend and say, did you hear what this person said? Text that person and say, hey, this is what I heard you said. Can you clarify for me? Most of us consider gossip to be a really, really low sin. 
But that's why our, our enemy Satan uses it because it's so powerful to destroy the thing that Jesus spent his final hours praying for, our unity. So let's attack the problem, not each other. I'm not standing here having never done it myself. I'm just saying there's way too much of this and not enough of this. Ask for and accept help. If you're getting beaten down today because of the opposition, then blow your proverbial ram's horn and ask for help. And when people come to give you help, let them. Some of us have a really hard time saying, I need help, and some of us have a hard time accepting that help. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're human. And then number five, keep your eyes on Jesus. I told you that there were some times this year that I felt like quitting. And here's the passage that God used to encourage me. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the don't keep your eyes on me. I will disappoint you. Keep your eyes 